Buckle up. This is one of our most fascinating episodes. We were privileged to have Rabbi Benjamin Blech, who was a rabbi for 37 years in Oceanside, New York. When he retired at the age of 60, he went into his basement, made a few calls to his stockbroker, and within a short amount of time, he generated $7 million. It's an incredible story. Listen to Rabbi Blech, hear what happened to the $7 million, and hear the lessons he learned along the way. Without further ado, I give you the great Rabbi Benjamin Blech. Being a Jew? Awesome. Managing personal finances? Not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. An exciting episode here at Kosher Money. I think this is going to be one of our more fascinating episodes. People have an interest in story-based episodes, and we'd love to hear your story, Rabbi Blach. Well, my story has a number of parts to it, but let me tell you that it is rather unusual for Rabbi Sachin myself, who has written 23 books, to have one of the most popular ones about money in the stock market. Now, uh, one of the dreams of a rabbi is to make it to the New York Times and be covered and uh, have his books uh, gain some publicity uh, from New York Times. Lo and behold, <laughs> of all the books that I've written that uh, I felt were extremely important in religious terms, the one that made it to the front page of the business section of the New York Times, Sunday Times, mm-hmm. was the book that I wrote on the stock market. And uh, that was both fascinating and uh, rewarding and also uh, very unnerving because um, it came with a story and a story that in fact uh, gave me a great deal of pain but subsequently allowed me to come to an understanding of money that I had never had before from the perspective of Torah psychology, reality, and helping me through life subsequently. Uh, So let me give you the background. Let's do it. I was a uh, poor rabbi, perhaps that's being redundant. (laughs) I was a rabbi of a shul for close to four decades. At the same time, I've also been a professor of Talmud at Yeshiva University. But after spending almost 40 years at the Young Israel of Oceanside as the rabbinic leader and concurrently being at YU, I decided uh, it was time to semi-retire. So semi-retire in my world meant that I only had one full-time job Mm -hmm. instead of two. Uh, I don't know how to put this delicately, but uh, as a rabbi, I made... uh, uh, very little money. And so that as I was about to retire, I uh, looked at my finances, and uh, I'll be blunt and honest as I am in the book, after serving for four decades in the rabbinate, I had accumulated uh, about $50,000, and that was it. 
And I said, uh, how am I going to insure the rest of my life and uh, take care of my family, etc., etc.? How old were you at this time about? At this time, I was uh, about 60 years old. 60 years old. Over 60. It's true that I did have the other job, and uh, that also didn't pay too well. Mm -hmm. But uh, I had a Yitzhahara. Uh, An evil inclination. Yeah, an evil inclination that uh, I'm just saying it uh, lightly. Um, Here I was recognizing that the bottom line, I was a poor rabbi. And in my family, I had two cousins who uh, were very much in the stock market and became multimillionaires. One became a billionaire. And uh, I don't want to give too many details because I don't want to talk about them publicly. But uh, I have to admit there was a sense of envy. Mm -hmm. Not the bad envy, but why can't I accumulate money just as they did? Because, you'll forgive my saying so, but we're going to speak openly and honestly. I I had always, always in school been the smartest guy in the room. I was the guy who graduated summa cum laude. I was uh, a student of the Rav. Everybody acknowledged that I was a very bright guy. And uh, here I'm going to be struggling for the rest of my life. And uh, I don't even know if I can take care of my family properly. I said to myself, you know, if I have cousins and uh, they made it that big, I'm at least as smart as they are. Now, my intellect had been geared to Torah, but I said anybody who knows Torah should also be able to immerse himself in any other field and learn it and be able to make a good living out of it. And so I said to myself, after retirement, let me study the market a little bit and let me take the money that I have, the 50000 and see what I can do with it. And I read, I studied, I spoke to people. And uh, now here comes the good and the bad part. Um, in the course of a year, I turned the 50000 into $7 million. But, there's a but, The but is it just so happened that all of this coincided with a wonderful time in the market. It was the turn of the century, and everything was exploding. Um, And I kept thinking that, uh, boy, I'm a genius. This was not good for my ego, Mm -hmm. because uh, to be thinking that you're so smart that you can beat the market is perhaps the first fundamental lesson that I should give everybody. And don't think that uh, you can outsmart the market. And don't be a Balgaivenik, that's an egotist, to the extent that you think that uh, you know everything. It took a hold of me. And... uh, did your wife know at the time that you were making this money? Did your family know? How, how? Of course my wife knew. And of course she was very happy, but she didn't know enough about the market uh, to be able to warn me that uh, I'm uh, also 
going to be able to lose <laughs> just as I'm making, and this is not a one-way street. You know, there's a famous saying that Wall Street is a one-way street that leads mm -hmm. into the river, mm -hmm. which is true. And uh, the bottom line is, in retrospect, I can tell you that uh, it was not good for me to become so, so immersed in the market to the extent that it uh, made me feel that I was uh, smarter than. Now, when I said before that I was very bright, means uh, I took my intellect and I used it for Torah. And I was a good Rebbe, a very good Rebbe. And uh, uh, as a religious Jew, I gave tzedakah and all. But uh, never think you're too smart because that is your downfall. And sure enough, when the market began to turn, as it always does. By the way, I subsequently discovered that Warren Buffett, who is the most successful probably ever in timing the market and understanding the market, said that uh, the secret of the market's ups and downs are part and parcel of the Joseph story in the Bible, where uh, what Joseph basically told Egypt was, you know, we got a lot, a lot of grain now, but there's going to come a time when. So, save in the good times in order to have uh, the bad times. But when you're on a roll, especially for the first time, and you think you got it beat, you really know the system, and wow, nobody's smarter than you, it consumes you totally. So much so that uh, my first lesson, um, which subsequently I really took to heart as a message from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, a message from God. I did what a lot of people who get consumed by the market do, even to this day, where uh, I kept calling my broker every half hour, sometimes more, and I uh, wanted to know what the prices were. And So you uh, weren't trading on a computer, it was through a third party? No, you didn't do that. I, I had a broker. Okay. And, so aside from the fact that there was tremendous little Torah involved, mm -hmm. uh, negation of uh, study time, it was all-consuming, but uh, more. I'll tell you one time later, later, when the market began to turn, and uh, I wasn't making the money that I was making, but all of a sudden discovered that you can lose as well. My wife asked me, why do you keep calling the broker for prices. And uh, I had my aha moment when uh, I said, to, well, I want to I wanna find out how much I'm worth. I kept saying that expression until way, way into the decline. I said, am I actually saying what I thought I said? I want to find out how much I'm worth. Is my worth determined by the ups and downs of the Dow? That's crazy. That is absurd. And how am I misleading myself into my personal worth by looking at my portfolio? I am a Rebbe. I am a father. I am a husband. I am a Jew. I am all the things that I'm supposed to be, and I'm defining myself by the market. But it took a little while for that to sink in. In the interim, the market began to decline. 
and it had a huge decline. And the seven million uh, should have sold. You never, that's lesson number two, you never say sell now because it's down because you remember that just a month, two months, a year, it was worth X and now it's worth S, so it'll come back. And somehow it doesn't listen to your instructions. And uh, before I knew it, I didn't lose all of it. Thank God. I lost most of it, almost all of it. And uh, at that point, I must tell you, and people who've gone through this know, the pain of losing money is far greater than the joy of making it. And uh, here I was. I had been counseling people in my congregation for years. I had been talking about the golden calf and the foolishness of pursuing wealth and all the good things that religion teaches us. And I was a victim. And I was personally shattered to the extent that I would say uh, I went through a depression of uh, close to a year. And uh, my field, obviously, had been Torah and Yiddishkeit. Plus, I have a master's from Columbia in social psychology. So I said to myself, as I'm trying to heal myself, because I can't afford to go to a psychiatrist or somebody who charges hundreds of dollars an hour, mm -hmm. uh, I said, Torah has everything. And my secular learning, which can be associated with teachings of Torah, should be able to get me out of this and should have lessons for me I should be able to teach myself some of the truths that will allow me not only to come back, but will allow me to be more than I was before, A, in terms of knocking the ego out of me that I had approved, that turned me somewhat, in retrospect, I can tell you, into uh, someone who was more interested in there were workings of the market and the ups and, uh, and ups and ups than what I should have been. And uh, I should be able to be smarter than I was before. I came to a truth that subsequently was validated in a fascinating way, which I want to share with Please. you. Now, I thought, and then in my own life, when I've gone through certain important moments, because I write well, again, I've written 23 books, I said, I'm going to write a book on this with what you can learn from this. There's an expression in Yiddish that's very beautiful, that someone who has gone through a bad experience, and in particular, losing money has paid Rebbe Gelt. Rebbe Gelt is a Yiddish expression meaning uh, educational money or money for a teacher. Instead of going to a class, uh, you have a teacher that comes from your own life experience. Now, in my readings 
for recovery, I discovered something very fascinating in Fortune magazine. There was an article that said that uh, the big Wall Street corporations, when they look through the resumes of people who are applying for positions in the financial world, they look among the many, many things that the person has for one thing in terms of a positive. Has this person ever failed? Failed. Because without failure, you can mislead yourself in so many different ways. You can tell the worth of a person by the experiences that he or she has had and whether there was failure and how the person overcame it. I, I thought this was a great story in the aftermath of my having written the book, which we're going to be discussing. Right? So the book is called Taking Stock, and that's a double entendre, taking stock. I took stock, but after that, I took stock of my mm. life. And it's the subtitle is A Spiritual Guide to Rising Above Life's Financial Ups and Downs. The book came out. It gets front page coverage on the business section of the Times. I get uh, tremendous feedback. I go into uh, a big uh, building in Manhattan that has business offices, and a guy looks at me and he says, are you the rabbi who lost $7 million? I, I felt ridiculous as being known in that mm -hmm. way, but my picture had been in the article, et cetera. Okay, I, I didn't make it <laughs> into the Times on the basis of my shot in a, in a Tosas or a Gemara, but uh, I'm the guy who made and lost but that, that's a here, good that I, I like that in that you're not just the rabbi who lost seven million, you also made seven million. That that's what's amazing. This is what amazed me when I get a phone call. Drew University is in Lower Manhattan, and they have a business program. And uh, I get a call from them, and the dean of the program says, uh, we would like to invite you. We have a special program for our uh, business students who are MBA material, and uh, um, we have a lecture scheduled for them. Um, eight, eight major people uh, once a month. The head of Forbes, the head of Dow Jones, the head of Fortune, and he mentioned a couple of other people. And we asked them to speak and give of their wisdom, their experience, their knowledge to these MBA students. And we would like to invite you to be one of the speakers. I said, excuse me, uh, you're inviting me because uh, because of the article in the Times and because the book that you've written. Did you read the book? Uh, yes, we love the book. I said, uh, do you realize that uh, my contribution to uh, <laughs> finance is that I took a small amount of money, turned it into a lot, but I lost almost all of it? And why would you be asking me 
the lecture when I lost the money. And I said, precisely because you lost the money, you must have learned a great deal. And that's why we want you. And uh, if you will allow me a moment of ego, because I've already put myself down. Please, uh, raise yourself up. So let me raise myself up. At the end of the year, they ask the students, whose lecture made the greatest impact on you? What did you gain from a lecture? And it was given by whom? Unanimous. My lecture, the lecture of a rabbi in MBA class wow. at Drew University was the lecture that I gave to them because I opened their minds not just to how to make money, but what making money means, what it implies, what you should be aware of, what you should know, and what are the factors that determine when you fail that can be used to become a winner. You know, I read this very, very interesting. Uh, there's one man who lost every single election that he was ever in when he ran for anything and everything except for one. His name was Abraham Lincoln, and he won the presidency. And uh, so um, Senator Hayakawa once said, the greatest mistake that people make is to confuse the word fail and failure. You're not a failure if you fail. If you learn from why you failed, you are more than and better than someone who has never failed because you did it once, you succeeded once, and then you failed, so you learned to humble yourself in the areas where you can make mistakes and you must have learned from your experience. And I did. Uh, People always ask me, normally I leave them in suspense. I don't have the seven million, but thank God, you know I have never gone without a meal, money for a meal. I have never uh, failed to be able to support my family, uh, my, uh, my wife, you mentioned my wife just mm-hmm. today, just because she went through the ups and the downs and then had enough faith in me to be able to feel what I subsequently taught myself from the failures, which weren't failures, but I consider lessons. And lessons are the best things in life. Now, a test I read this great line. In school, you study for before you take the test. A lesson of life, you take the test first, Mm. and then having learned from it, you become something else. I must, having brought up Drew University, share with you one of the things that made a huge impact on the students. I, before I gave the the full talk and, as I said to you, the things that you can learn and you must learn to ensure that you don't make the same stupid mistake over and over again. But I asked him a more fundamental question. It's a question that anybody who dedicates himself to making money should ask himself, 
or herself. And uh, by that, I don't mean just if you want to make millions and millions, but you're making money. Ask yourself the following question, which I asked the MBA students. Now, this story st has stayed with me throughout all the years because it is incredibly significant. I start off by saying to them, now, all of you are in this MBA program, and that means that in terms of all the scholarly fields and all the professions that are open to you, you have said to yourself, you want to make a lot of money. Let me ask you, suppose with the power of imagination, I would say to you, uh, I'm going to give you uh, a check right now for $100 million. You're thinking in your lives that you want to work and accumulate and eventually get $100 million. What would you do with it? What would you do with $100 million? I mean, you're working towards a goal, and what is the real end purpose of this? A girl raises her hand, mm -hmm. and this is this perfect <laughs> for my purpose, and she says, I would invest it. And I said, that's fascinating. I've just given you a gift of fulfillment of 100 million, but maybe I made a mistake. Maybe 100 million, this was a number of years ago, but maybe 100 million isn't real money anymore for you people. Maybe that's uh, just a first step, but it misses the point of my question. So let's change it with the same power that I gave you 100 million. Suppose I gave you a billion, or suppose I gave you $10 billion. Mm -hmm. I mean, that should be enough for anybody. Okay, make it 10 billion. I can give you an imaginary 10 billion. I asked you, what would you do with it? And you said invest. And I'm sure that that's your answer. And when I asked the question again, you would say invest. And I want you to think about it. When you invest, you are basically saying you want to take the paper that I gave you, money, which basically has the ability to purchase, to fulfill your dreams. What are your dreams? Now, when I went around the room, there wasn't a single person in that group of Drew University students who wanted to become MBAs and who wanted to make 100 million, a billion, or whatever, who knew what the heck they wanted to do with the hundreds of millions of dollars that they were going to dedicate their lives to. That's incredible, because all they were doing was accumulating more and more paper without ever thinking about what their ultimate goal is, because money is the key to getting something else. Now, what's the difference between uh, success and happiness? Um, it's a great line. Success is having whatever you want, and happiness is wanting whatever you have. It's the ability to say to yourself that my life is a success because I have worked for certain goals 
and I have achieved them. Now, uh, I realized if I asked myself, was I happy? When my stocks went up, I would have said yes. Was I happy after I gave a share and I knew I changed the lives of some kids and some came over to me years later and said to me, you changed my life, Rebbe. That was real happiness. Yeah. That was, in other words, understanding your goal is the key, the first step to everything, right? And to believe that there are all these people who do everything without thinking of what the ultimate goal is, is remarkable. Without taking stock. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The conversation with Ellie and Robbie Black will be right back. But first, we got an exciting announcement for all of you. Wait, are you enjoying this week's episode so Oh far? my gosh, that thing when he was with the stuff? Wow. Okay. Yeah, I don't know where, where the ad is going to be. Yeah. We're up to, so. It's going to be fascinating. You're going to love it. You weren't here when we recorded with him. Right? I didn't listen to this episode yet, but... Uh, it's weird people are in the middle of it I, I've never seen you so excited about an episode yes the advice he gave he gave out numbered lessons loved it but we interrupt this message with a word from approved funding mm -hmm. Shmuel Shiawitz the best. we called him up we said we are interviewing someone who made seven million dollars and before he went on to lose most of that money, if he would have called you up, Shmuel, what would you have told him to do with that money, invest in real estate? And Shmuel listed off like four things that he recommends uh, for someone if they were to invest in real estate. Can you give us a little taste of that? Yeah, you know, this idea that just because you have money doesn't mean you should be spending it, but that doesn't mean you can't buy what you need. He was talking about financing and this idea that larger companies and wealthy individuals will tap into financing for whatever reasons he has. No, I'm saying those. a taste of Shm what Shmuel's advice is. Yeah, this was it. In the sense that you can um, leveraging and financing and just because you have $7 million doesn't mean you should take that $7 million and buy a $7 million Ah, building, okay, got it, got it, got you it. can actually exactly. take out a loan or you know go to the bank and approved funding has um, quite a bit of means. I think uh, there's a number here. Did Shmuel say anything about Doge? Did he Dogecoin? Did no. that come up? We didn't do crypto, but we can have him in here. I think what we're going to do is we're going to have Shmuel come into the studio. Ooh, I like we'll do that. Sixty second bites of advice that because people has. are hearing so much about him and how much we love him. Why not hear it from the man himself who actually helps so many people? You know he's a redhead? Is he? No, he's not. People have like these visions of what he looks like. I, I'm excited to do I a reveal. I see how he looks. I follow him on Instagram. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You could, by the way, follow him on Instagram if you if you haven't yet. He's on LinkedIn. He's doing cool yeah, LinkedIn videos too. with his staff. Um, yeah, approvedfunding.com slash kosher money. Hit them up with all your questions. Tell them we say hi. And now back to this week's episode. Now, um, when I pursued this, I found this remarkable article now, in San Francisco, where you have the, uh, uh, the, the, the golden winners of uh, life's circle, right? You have Silicon Valley. In order to um, buy a house and live in Silicon Valley, you must have uh, a minimum portfolio of uh, 50 mil and uh, make a number of million a year. And there is a psychiatrist there 
who says that there is one thing missing in Silicon Valley, sufficient psychiatrists to deal with the people that I deal with. And uh, he says, I can't keep up with my practice. And here are all these people who have everything that people might say is the key to happiness, and they are dreadfully unhappy. That's remarkable. So um, who was it, Seneca, that said, uh, what is the key to happiness? Well, there's poverty and there's great wealth, and uh, both of them have proven, been proven not to bring about happiness. What I want to make clear as I'm saying all this, mm -hmm. and I don't want anybody to mistake what my meaning is, nor do I want anybody to think that uh, this book is going to tell me, oh, money's not a big deal. I don't say that. Um, I don't know who your listening audience is. I want to make clear that Judaism differs from Christianity in a number of fundamental ways, and one of them is with regard to our attitude to money. Now, in the New Testament, it is harder for a... Uh, a rich person to get to heaven than for a poor person to go through the eye of a needle. I mean, ridiculous for us uh, ideas about poverty being an ultimate ideal and people taking a vow of poverty and so on. In the Torah, we speak of Abraham who became a rich man. We speak of wealth as a reward from God. All of that acknowledges that money is important. And whatever I say about money that seems to diminish its value is taking it incorrectly. You know that, um, it's fascinating, when the Jews took a census, they never counted people. We don't count people because that would turn a person into a number. What is it that they say? Uh, the concept of six million with regard to the Holocaust never really gets a response because six million is a number. Stalin said that. It's just a number. But Anne Frank is a person. That's one, and you understand, right? So you don't want to speak about numbers. When they took a census in the Torah, fascinating, uh, God told Moshe to have every Jew give half a shekel. And then what they would do is total the number of half shekels and they would know the population. So uh, the Midrash has Moshe saying to God, I don't get it in this discussion. Moshe, I don't understand. Please help me understand. And it doesn't explain what Moshe's difficulty was. And then God, it says, showed him a coin of fire and uh, Moshe said, oh, okay, I get it. And then he collected the money. So what was the question, first of all? What couldn't he understand? And the commentaries say beautifully, he couldn't understand. You want to count the people? You mean you're going to count people based on money? Money is going to be the standard of counting. No. We don't want to count individuals, but he showed him a coin of fire because he used money to indicate that money, like fire, has a duality to it. Fire is the most destructive and is the most constructive. The most destructive, it burns, it destroys, 
most constructive. You cook and you warm yourself, etc., etc. And half a shekel, because every person is only half of what he can accomplish with money. With money, we can give tzedakah. With money, we can build yeshiva. With money, we can do good. Money is a good thing in Judaism. Maybe that's why we have been so successful monetarily, because our religious values never look down upon the accumulation of money. On the other hand, we always said, but remember what the purpose of accumulating money is, and don't become the person who calls his broker every 20 minutes mm-hmm. to find out what he's worth and determines his worth based on how much is in the bank or how much he has been able to keep to himself. That is an absurdity. In other words, the first thing that a Jew must do when he says, I want to accumulate money, the first thing I should have done when I said to myself, hey, I'm poor after being a rabbi for all these years Mm -hmm. and my cousins are wealthy, and I was envious. Yeah. First of all, I should have envied only the Chofetz Chaim and the Chassam Sofer. And so. But if I was going to be envious of, then I should have said to myself, because I want to do such and such and such and such. So I'll tell you another story. And this again is in the aftermath of this book. Uh, I stress that in this book, I don't just tell stories, but I really teach the experiences that I learned so much so that as I already told you, I was invited to Drew University and MBA, but I had another greater, better invitation. And that was two years after that. And I get a call from, uh, it's a group called the Titans and That is Titans of Industry, 100 of the top CEOs of American corporations, I mean the largest corporations, meet once a year at um, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. And uh, what they do is they have series of lectures, almost all of which are dedicated to their being together and discovering how they can make more money and what are the new things that uh, are in in American culture that will allow them to make more, etc., etc. It's all about helping them to become even bigger and better. But they decided years ago they were going to have one lecture about themselves and improving themselves or something that would address their own needs as people, as individuals. And uh, a number of them had read this book Mm -hmm. and they invited me. So the actual function is called The Gathering of Titans. Mm -hmm. And here is Rabbi Benjamin Blech going up to MIT. It's a fascinating experience. They bought kosher for me. They they didn't know what to do for me. And uh, I'm speaking to the heads of all these major corporations. And uh, I said to them the following, again, as a lead-in, but a lead-in that a number of top people in the country came over to me and said, you have changed my life, Rabbi. Because 
I said to them, I'm not a businessman, but I know enough about major corporations to know that every big business has a mission statement. I've read about that. Um, Google has a mission statement. Uh, every big company has a mission statement, which in a few sentences says what they hope to accomplish personally, mm -hmm. not just accumulate money, but some, what is your mission? I said to them, you are heads of major businesses. You run multi-billion corporations. But you have one business that's the most important of all for which you will be remembered. One business that has the greatest importance in terms of what mark you leave on this earth, what heritage, and what you produce in terms of your children and your family. That is, what is your mission statement in life? Have any of you ever done a mission statement for yourself, not for your business? What you want to be, who you want to be, what you want to leave over, what do you want for it to say on your tombstone? Because, I said to them, I've been a rabbi for many, many years. At that time, it was, uh, clo again, close to 40 years. And I've been on many, many cemeteries. I've read the tombstones that I passed by all the, and I never saw, never in my life did I see a tombstone that said the name of the person that when he died uh, had $5 billion <laughs> or whatever he managed to accumulate in his life. Never did it say his worth, mm. in quotes, in terms of financial worth. What it did speak of is very often charities that he founded, uh, what he did with his money. There's that famous story with uh, Rothschild, the original Rothschild, Mayor Rothschild, who was religious, and uh, they asked him, how much uh, are you worth? Question comparable to that. And uh, he gave a sum and they said, uh, first of all, how'd you know that right away? And uh, what made you give that number? Because you probably have more than that. Doesn't sound like, well. and he said, uh, oh, uh, that's not what's in the bank, in my bank. Uh, that's what I gave away in charity. Mm. And that's really what I have. That's my legacy. That's what I have achieved. Now, if you could say that and say to yourself, I want money because, and the because is a valid reason that can make you be remembered Latove for good, then you were not just accumulating paper, you were putting together a portfolio which if you believe in God and if you believe in purpose of life, you could say, and here's the book, and this is what I did. I'll tell you a great Midrashic story. Um, there's a man who dies, and he's going to be judged by the heavenly court. And uh, he's in line, and he sees the line moving slowly, and... Uh, he hears the questions that are 
asked. And he starts to get a little nervous because they ask, uh, did you pray? Did you observe Yom Kippur, Shabbat, etc., etc.? But then, as things pick up, he hears that they ask, and did you give charity? And how much did you give? And uh, did you ever uh, build an institution that has your name? Did you this? Did you that? And he says, now I'm not worried at all when it's his turn. He says, I know what you're going to ask me. I've heard. And if you're going to ask me about religious practice and my relationship with God, I was very, uh, uh, not very adept at that. But I hear that giving charity is extremely important. And I would love right now like to write out a check here and now to whatever charity God wants me to give in the sum of $10 million dollars. And they said to him, sorry, here we don't accept checks, only receipts, mm. only receipts. What we need to know is what you did, what you did during your lifetime. And when the Vilna Gaon cried when he was on his deathbed and they said to him, how could you cry when you know you're going to heaven after the life that you lived. He said, how can I not cry when here on earth I could with the smallest effort have given a little charity, done this, done that, and achieved something, and now death represents the end of my ability to accomplish. If we could grasp that, then we would understand why we want money, why we need money, and accomplish something with it. Of course money is significant. Yes. Don't skip ahead. We have a quick word from a sponsor. Kolel Chabad. You've heard about them on previous episodes. They're helping children who are in hospitals, people who don't have money for camp in the summer, people who don't have money for Passover. So many people across Israel qualify for their help, and they need us. They need you. Um, someone actually listened to an ad recently, stopped what he was doing, and donated 7 thousand dollars because of an ad so we also have people that are stopping what they're doing clicking on the link and donating a dollar donating five eighteen dollars for chai whatever you can do we have people donating recurringly i don't know if that's a word but they're making recurring donations eighteen dollars a month thirty six dollars a month orphans seniors Kol Chabad is amazing. If you if you are in Israel, look them up. Go visit there and tour what what they're doing. They're creating food packages for so many people, so many families in need in Israel. And we cannot thank you enough for their support, for your support, supporting them, for their support, supporting those so much in need. Support, support, support. That is the mission. That is their mission. That is our mission. Please help us support them. And now back to this week's episode. It's a fascinating story, I think more than just making a lot of money and losing a lot of money, but how you've turned it into a positive experience that you're sharing with others. And when I shared with people the story, and we're going to link in the show notes to the book, which is available for digital download, I received dozens of questions I had to pick from you know, all through, uh, I had to pick questions related to Amuna and Betachon, and I think I want to start there. When you talk about this depression, were you leaning on 
outsiders. I know you spoke about your background being a rabbi and the psychology and the Torah. Were you talking to people? Were you learning Sfarim about Amunen Betachon? And since then, have you been more conscious of increasing your Betachon since that episode? Let me do the second question first. Definitely. This has been a long journey for me, and I call it a journey in Betachon, in faith. There are so many things that I saw happening afterwards when I began to understand the purpose of money and related it to my purpose in life. Happiness came in a way that I had not had before, and uh, trust in God is a remarkable thing. There's some stories that I have here where uh, in terms of uh, subsequently making money when I put my faith in God, when I gave charity, sometimes, and I'm sure there are a lot of listeners who can corroborate this, sometimes when you give and then you get back and there is a clear linkage between the two, I'll tell you very quickly, Uh, I took that tour to Eastern Europe, and I was in Warsaw. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to the large synagogue that was there now. The place was packed, and uh, I did not identify myself as a crowd. And um, in the middle of the, when they start to read the Torah, they're going to give an aliyah to, they call people up to the Torah. And somehow the president who looked around the room, saw me, and uh, he saw something in me, I don't know what, and he pointed at you, okay, I, I get an aliyah. And I was shaking because uh, I said, uh, my father came from Poland, and maybe he was here once, and look, I have the honor, the schuss after the Holocaust to come here. And uh, uh, so uh, I get the aliyah, and at the end, I uh, didn't realize what they were going to do Misha Berachavas, I know Iago, and they ask for a pledge, a donation. So um, uh, I had mixed feelings. I, at that moment, if somebody would have asked me, I would have said, "Whatever money I have in the bank, <laughs> take." I don't know. On the other hand, I knew that I was in a crowd that people were before me and people were after me, and I didn't want to stand out or show off or anything. I'm not the rich American. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw that there was uh, low sums, but I said, uh, oh, I said, Pamayim Chai, two times Chai, $36. Mm-hmm. And there was a gasp, a visible gasp, because in terms of American money, and I, it, was, it was a huge amount for there. It was out of bounds of what they did. Mm-hmm. The president says to me, uh, where are you staying? I told him, in the... Hilton, right nearby, is, mm-hmm. is okay if a committee comes after Shabbos to collect the money. Mm-hmm. And they say, absolutely, please come. Right after Shabbos, I mean, a couple of minutes after Shabbos, he's looking for me. I'm in the lobby. He says, you know, you made a donation, $36. That's fine. I, uh, let me go upstairs, go to the room, go to the safe, and I bring down $36. Fine. And after that, what do you do in Warsaw on a Saturday night? Nothing, except in the hotel where we were, there was a casino, and uh, I said to my wife, all right, let's go to casino. I don't know any of the game. I don't do 21. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know roulette. I don't know anything, but they have a slot machine, a number of slot machines. Mm-hmm. I go to a slot machine, 
put in a coin, this. The place goes crazy. Music plays, gongs go off, everything stops. I said, what happened? Coins start coming out of the machine. And I said to my wife, get a bucket, get another bucket, <laughs> and we fill and all of a sudden, I said to myself, I'm going to come home, I'm going to retire, and look, what is all this? I can't believe it. They tell me, you hit the jackpot. Okay, I say, I'm not going to be a fool. I'm not going to stay in the game and lose it all. I'm going right now with all of this money and cash it in. And I go over and cash it in. And uh, I say to a woman, she's counting, uh, how much did I win here and she tells me like 10 million something or other uh, in Ms. Lutus, right mm -hmm. so I say how much is that in American money she goes oh $36 <laughs> <laughs> right? uh, so I said to myself thank you daddy and uh, it's a beautiful way to teach me a lesson that what you give you get back yeah that's that's good um, get back to your first question mm -hmm. uh Amuna, the more you deal with money, with a religious sensitivity, the more, I guarantee you, you will recognize that, as the Talmud tells us, it's all predestined. It's from God. And uh, what you need, what God wants you to do, is to learn lessons. Mm -hmm. I, I want to teach you one, one sure. other lesson. I think it's extremely important. Do you know why we go off the Dera <laughs> in this way? Earl Pickett, name that you should know, number one in advertising. And he wrote the book on advertising. And he said the purpose of advertising everyone who's in the business should know, is to make people unhappy with what they have. And the, he had, I don't remember the number, how many advertisements we are exposed to daily, either watching on TV, radio, or newspapers, magazines. We are supposed to, and we do because they're experts at what they do, we're supposed to look at all these ads and say, I don't have this, I don't have this, I don't have this, I don't have this. And therefore, we feel that we have not been successes. Basically, American culture, why the emphasis on money? Why? Why, why shouldn't people just be happy as they have enough to fulfill their needs? Uh, who was it, Gandhi, who said, there's enough in this world to fill everyone's need. There's never enough to fill, fill everyone's greed. Why can't we be happy? Why are people with tons of money not happy? And the answer is in the Asarita Dibrot, because in the Asarita Dibrot, they say the last of the Ten Commandments is at the bottom and is the foundation for the violation of the ones above do not covet. Do not covet. I have this great cartoon. It's not enough that I fly first class. My friends must also fly coach. Hmm. Right? 
Or I climbed up the ladder of success to the top floor, and then I realized I was in the wrong building. I was in the wrong building. Mm -hmm. Climb the ladder of success. Climb to the penthouse. So you're in the penthouse. But that building is not the key to happiness. Now, they say it over and over again. I am not talking about minimal amounts that obviously every one of us needs. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about survival. I'm not talking about survival with your cult of a savoto and, and uh, uh, be full and, and all of that. But I'm saying when you reach the point where you have enough for yourself and for, for your family, I don't know how many generations down, and why can't you then say, but what am I really supposed to do mm. with it? And you get messages. You asked a wonderful question and you made a great point. Yes, we will get reminders from God and I got my reminder. And yes, I am a different person than I was. First of all, than I was when I started the accumulation of money and when I wanted more and more and I defined my personal worth by my portfolio but more once I lost it and I discovered the truths that I have here then I began to understand much better do you know why most people are unhappy there's a great story about a guy who goes to his class reunion and he is extremely happy with his life. He's fulfilled. He has everything that he needs. He's happily married. He has children. He has respect of a community. And he goes to this thing, and then he sees that among the people who are there is this one guy who he thought was a schnook and is now a multimillionaire, and this other guy who outranks him in terms of uh, driving a Rolls Royce and uh, this and that. And he comes home in the evening, at night and he starts to cry. He cries because he doesn't have what they have. But you idiot, what do you have? Look at what you have. Tell you a great story. Somebody asked a Rebbe the question, the following question. You know they ask in the outside world, you have a glass, it's half full of water, the other half, nothing. Uh, how would you describe it? So, big controversy. Do you say the glass is half empty or do you say the glass is half full? Rebbe, I'm asking you the question. I want to see how you would answer it. Is the glass half empty or is the glass half full? Rebbe says it's an obvious answer. The glass is completely full. Now, what do you mean? The Rebbe says, sure, half full of water and half full of air. And now what's amazing is that people need water and they can live without it for about three days, right? But people need air and you can't live without it for more than a few minutes. And yet, just like looking at your life, look at what you have. You say, oh, my glass is half empty. That part is not as important as how full it is with the things that really matter. Mm -hmm. The air of life is 
your contributions to the world, your meaning to the world. Tell me, will they miss you when you're gone? Who will miss you? Why will they miss you? What have you achieved? What have you left? Give me your mission statement. And don't tell me that what you would do with more money is invested because then you wouldn't do anything except leave a bigger Yerusha for your kids to be spoiled by. And they once asked Kirk Douglas, um, what are you lacking that you can't give to your children? He says, poverty. The poverty that formed me, mm. that made me struggle and made me appreciate every dollar that I made and made me work hard. I regret dreadfully that I could not pass that on to my children. I was talking to a friend and he was getting into the business. He was newly married and he was talking to his father about getting a job at his construction company. And his father told him, you're not worth much to me because I'm not going to pay you as if you're an executive. You don't have the training. So if you want to start from the bottom in my company, I'll pay you. You might not be able to pay your bills right away, but I'm not going to give you the royal treatment. I'm not going to lean on the nepotism here to, to, to guide you through this business. I'll, I'll train you, but I'm not going to financially support you from day one as if you were someone who came in with experience. It wouldn't be fair to you. And he appreciated that even in the moment because he was able to take from it a lesson that you have to work for something. And a lot of people, and this question does come up where people always say that they would want to win the lottery and have a sudden amount of wealth in their bank account. And I've mentioned on this podcast in the past how I'm frightened from that idea because you wouldn't know who your friends are and it would be too big of a change at once and you know God knows why someone would need such crazy amounts of money. Um, but my question here is, if you were to come into $7 million tomorrow, how would you spend it? How would you answer or how would you use that money if you had another chance. Let me first that. of all tell you that I have a chapter in the book about what happened to people who won the lottery. And almost all of them, with the exception of a few who gave almost the entire money to their favorite charities, regretted, rude the day that they won and say it destroyed their lives. Names, stories for real. Every, everyone wins. says they would be different. You yes, ever hear that? Everyone says that. And nobody would be. It's too much, too much of a challenge. Mm -hmm. Now, if you ask me what I would do, I would look in the Torah, as I did already, mm -hmm. and uh, the Torah gives us steps. Now, the first thing fascinating is love your neighbor as yourself implies, but yourself, you come first. Chayecho Kodin, your life mm -hmm. is first. So take care of, and there's a concentric circle. And the circle is... The Kohen Gadol, the high priest, prayed for himself, for his family, for neighbors, and then for Kol Yisrael, and then for the world. There are circles upon circles. Now, some people think, boy, that's a little unusual. The rabbi's telling me, what? I'm saying to you, first, 
you take care of yourself and your family. Yes, so you make sure. But as your story indicated, don't give them everything mm -hmm. because then they will never know the value of work. Let them learn to earn. The work that you do is the rent that we pay God for our place on earth. Mm. Yes, family, then community. These are rules in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law, that tell us how to distribute charity. Then your community, then the larger community, the Jewish world, because if we don't take care of ourselves, nobody will, and then the entire world, humanity. Yes. Now, if you ask me for specific numbers, I would say that is one of the things that require tremendous amount of thought and tremendous amount of control with the recognition that you were given a gift. If you were to tell yourself that the reason you got all this money is what a very wealthy man told me, why do I have all this money? It must be because God said, I will know what to do with it, so I'm working for him, mm. and I will distribute it in the right way. Pick your charities, pick those that are close to you. Don't give away everything. Don't give away any, everything because, as the Talmud tells us, you'll make yourself a poor man again, and mm -hmm. then you'll have to have somebody else pick you up. Live comfortably, and comfortably can mean, just as we say, in the benching, eat and then have a steak and a good scotch and be satiated and then bless God for all the good he gave you and then say, because I am so grateful, I know I must share the wealth. <sighs> did you have an itch to spend lavishly when you came into that money and did you? <laughs> Looking back, I was guilty in yet another way. Because at that point, you never say it's enough. And therefore, I was waiting to turn it into more than the seven million. If I was capable of taking 50,000 and making it seven million, why can't I take the seven million and turn it into 14 million? The Talmud tells us that psychology and Jewish thought are very much in sync. Anyone who has 100 wants 200, which is why the sages say it's a fantastic psychological insight that a wealthy person is poorer, poorer than a rich person because, uh, let's say, a middle-class person. So he has, uh, he has 100,000. And uh, so all he feels he's lacking is 100,000, double what he has. But the guy who has 50 million needs another 50 million because he needs double what he has. So he's actually poorer. Mm -hmm. Did your children, I know you said your wife knew about it, did your children know about the sudden wealth or they were unfamiliar? Or? Not really. They None. did not know at the time and our standard of living did not change not in any big way. Uh, subsequently, I wrote the book and they read the book. <laughs> Busted, right? They, they found out. Um, you mentioned how the word money is dumbim. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
absolutely fascinating that the word for money, damim, is related to the word for blood or bloods. Uh, bloods is a plural because when Cain killed Hevel, uh, God said, the voice of the bloods of your brother cry out to me. It's bloods plural because he killed not only his brother, but all those who could have come from him. Now, um, what we are basically saying in the Hebrew language is that money is accumulated with my blood, blood, sweat, and tears. It took me all my energy to make this money, which is why, can I say something that might offend some people? Sure, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I, I was very taken aback when uh, during the time of uh, COVID, uh, there were uh, people who felt free to uh, go and uh, use that as an opportunity to break into businesses. They uh, plundered, they stole, and, and they were excused by uh, people of the woke generation because all the becauses that uh, I don't want to repeat. And uh, uh, the bottom line was they, they said uh, in exoneration of the people who did this, uh, it's only money. So that, uh, I don't want, again, I want to mention, mention the cities, but you talk about Portland and you talk about Seattle and you talk about uh, um, during the midst of the, uh, the COVID plague, I had the need to go into Midtown Manhattan and uh, I took a cab and I rode down Madison Avenue and Fifth Avenue and I saw all the stores boarded up. And uh, they were boarded up because they were broken into and uh, people just came and uh, smash and grab and took what they wanted. Now, you can tell me all about the inequalities of the American judicial system. And I will hear you out and I will say it needs to be changed. But don't you dare take that as justification, which many people did, for the smash and grab. Well, they were merely expressing their uh, feelings about the injustice of distribution of capital. Uh, you wanted to go that way, then uh, uh, there is no more justice and then uh, why should anybody open up a store? I don't know if you saw one of the major chains now is closing its stores all over the country because it doesn't pay. Because the police, uh, well, I really don't want to turn this into a political discussion, okay. but uh, if you uh, say that there is no bail and no consequence for, uh, for theft, and then what you're basically saying is it's okay to steal. And uh, this woman who uh, was uh, charged, caught 78 times, and they asked her what she does, and she says, that's what I do, I steal. And she still didn't go to jail, mm -hmm. still did not go to jail. And when you tell me, not you, but when someone says to me, yeah, that's only money, we're not talking about somebody who committed a physical crime, uh, you know, that money by that storekeeper was 
earned with his blood. And uh, if we don't understand the value of a person working, working diligently, not saying that he is entitled, and entitlement means that the government should give me everything, or even for past injustices, I should be paid off. We Jews don't say that. We don't say, give us because we worked hard for what we have, and uh, we consider damim tarti mashma. The word damim means blood, and it means money because you sweat blood to make money. Tell us the story about Elizabeth Taylor. I think she had a uh, Oh, she a had uh, jewelry, uh, you can imagine. You know how many times she was married, and every time she uh, uh, made a fortune, uh, that is to say they gave her I don't know what. And one time uh, she was in a hotel, and she was robbed of uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars of jewelry. And they asked her, did you cry? And she said, I only cry for things that cry for me, which is a beautiful, beautiful way of looking at it. In fact, it uh, <laughs> talked to me because uh, another confession, I'm making a lot of confessions to you. When I lost the money, I did cry. And uh, subsequently, it was only when I talked to myself and I said, okay, money, you can make it back. I will make it back. And Baruch uh, Hashem, as I said to you, I didn't make the seven million back, but uh, I'm comfortable. Mm -hmm. But more than comfortable, I'm happy, happier, knowing that my life has more meaning than my bank book. You speak about this um, disease called affluenza in, in your book. Oh, what is affluenza, and should people get vaccinated for it? What, what's going on? That's very funny. <laughs> um, this is something that uh, you might think is made up, and psychiatrists accept it, that there are people who suddenly are overwhelmed with money, either because, as we spoke before, about people who win the lottery, or people who suddenly make a ton of money for other reasons, and they don't know how to cope. And you would say, God, just try me, just test me. I would know. And in fact, there are many, many psychiatrists who work with people who suffer from affluenza, which is a joke word, affluence, affluenza, suddenly being overwhelmed with a lot of, lot of money mm -hmm. and not knowing what to do with it. And when you spend foolishly, without purpose, without knowledge, then you fall prey to psychological depression and to a whole host of results of consequences that uh, can destroy you and your family. I told you before about San Francisco and the psychiatrists. Uh, San Francisco is loaded with billionaires and uh, they're lining up to talk to psychiatrists because they are suffering from affluenza. So I'm just flipping through this book and even though the book is not in print, we do have it available for digital download that people can purchase it in the show notes. But um, you, you have this um, 
line in here about the difference between health and wealth that one starts with an H and one starts with a W and how H brings happiness and W brings worry. I, I, I whenever there's something good I, I flip I turn the corner of the page and practically every other page is uh is bent in. So highly recommend everyone um purchasing this book and I wanna ask or, or end off with what would be your parting advice to people? Um you know, there are people that may never, many, most people won't ever be tested with large amounts of money. Um, they may either be comfortable or living paycheck to paycheck, or even m- many people are in debt. Um, I guess this question is for the Rabbi Blech of today versus the Rabbi Blech of 20 plus years ago with a sudden amounts of millions of dollars what advice and and what can you tell them to help them sleep better at night um be better happier people don't feel guilty about wanting to make money hashem wants you to make money because hashem wants you to be able to support yourself your family your community so understand that making money avraham was blessed. The giants of Judaism were blessed, amongst other things, with wealth. And if you get a lot of it, feel that God has given you a mission. Write yourself a mission statement. Think about what we would do if you had more of it. You can even daven for money. Yes, you may do that. But say to Hashem, I'm going to be one of those, hopefully, right? I'm going to be one of those uh, who, once, if you answer my prayers, who will give the tzedakah that I'm supposed to, use it in a manner that helps the world, so that you're giving it to me is really a way of allowing me to help you. God, I want to work for you. There are many, many wealthy people who have sworn to me that they are certain that their wealth came to them only because of their faith and their vow, personal vow, of using the money properly. So don't be afraid to go for it. Uh, Gold has the word God in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with an L for love, <laughs> right? You should want to be counted by a matbeya shel esh, a coin of fire. God counts us with money in order to tell us that money is our first test. Eric Fromm wrote the following. He said, show me the stubs of your checkbook and I will tell you all about yourself. Mm -hmm. Show me the book that used to have your Meiser book. Meiser meaning 10%, 10% that you gave to charity and I will know all about you. Show it to God because God is looking. Now, I did not stress the God aspect 
fully here in this book because I wanted the book to be a universal book. Sold out, you can't get the book. So because I'm on this program tonight, with the help of my grandson, Noam Lubovsky, we make it uh, run off in such a manner whereby it's available again. And I would really hope for your sake. I'm not telling you this to make a fortune on it because I will just give it away. I have enough now. I have enough. One of the great stories, just allow me. Kurt Vonnegut once told a story about seeing Joseph Heller at a wealth, wealthy hedge fund manager's party at a beach house in the Hamptons. Casting his eye around the luxurious setting, Vonnegut said, Joe, doesn't it bother you that this guy makes more in a day than, than you ever made from writing Catch-22? No, not really, Heller said. I have something that he doesn't have. Really? What is that? He says, I have something that he doesn't have. I know the meaning of enough. I have far more than enough. Mm -hmm. After my story, I have enough and enough to give tzedakah and enough to live life smarter and even Drew University and even the Gathering of Titans understood that this man, because he failed, he didn't really fail. He passed the test of wealth. May every listener here get the test by getting money, but more important, passing the test and using it in such a way that God will give and continue to give you. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Rabbi Blech, for joining us. Thank you for listening to another episode of Kosher Money. Rabbi Blech has many books. There are two books I want to highlight. One is the one he referenced in this episode, Taking Stock, A Spiritual Guide to Rising Above Life's Financial Ups and Downs. It's a fascinating book. We didn't get to cover everything in this episode, so be sure you buy it. It's available for digital download click on the link in the show notes. It's 10 bucks. And then he also has another book that's worth noting. If God is good, why is the world so bad? That is one I found out about today, which I want to highlight. I will be purchasing that book as well. Also available for 10 bucks. Digital download. Click on the Gumroad link in the show notes. We are 30-something episodes in, and we want to thank our sponsors, Approved Funding, Please give them a call if you need advice, if you need insight, if you need a mortgage. And Koel Chabad, they're helping the world's neediest people. So be sure to help our sponsors so we can continue giving you the content you crave. If you are listening on YouTube and watching us in person, please click the subscribe button. You'll be notified when we have further episodes. You'll know about Inspiration for the Nation. You'll know about... So many podcasts that my brother Yaakov is creating, mental health, we cover money, we cover inspiring uh, people around the world. There is so much to cover, and we're excited 
to continue covering that for you. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate us five stars, leave a review. It helps us in the ranking. Spotify, you can now rate us there as well. If you're listening on Pushify, that's not a real app, but um, maybe that's something you can create. We also love suggestions. So take the time to go to livinglachaim.com, click on the suggestion tab, tell us about a guest for this podcast or any of the podcasts. If you'd like to sponsor an episode or 10 or 20 or 30, please hit us up there as well. Thanks to our friends over at livingsmarterjewish.org. They're creating really awesome financial financial curriculums. If you need advice, an advisor, guidance, they are the resource for you. I've spoken a lot. I've thought very little. Without further ado, I give you the end of this week's episode. Yaakov, take it away. Living L'chaim.